As you're working your way through what is known as the Holiness Code, the Holiness Code is a section of Leviticus, kind of sandwiched between a narrative. So chapter 10 kind of closes with this really interesting story of Nadab and Abihu, these sons of Aaron, offering strange fire. They get struck dead. There's a whole thing that happens. It closes. Moses is content. The day wraps up. Chapter 16 then opens kind of the continuation of that narrative, but wedged right between the story, kind of in the middle, you have the Holiness Code, chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, in which God deals with a lot of really interesting things. In fact, in chapter 10, God adds a little bit of additional responsibilities to the priesthood. He tells Aaron that there was two things they would have to do, distinguish between what was holy and unholy, between what was clean and unclean, and then teach the people the statutes teach them these things. Now, with that in mind, it's helpful that God would take time to make these distinctions, these holiness codes, God distinguishing for the Hebrew people what was clean, what was unclean, what was permissible, what was forbidden, on a wide array of topics. And as you're working your way through these things, you'll discover that in chapter 12, in the midst of these directives pertaining to a woman following childbirth, very important stuff, we looked at it extensively last Sunday, but in the middle of this, verse 3 in particular, we get this nugget, this kind of out of left field inclusion. We're told, verse 3, that on the eighth day, obviously following the birth of a baby boy, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Yes, this morning will be a message about circumcision. I know you were excited about that. It'll get better because when we get to chapter 15, we'll deal with bodily fluids. So we're working our way through things. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord required Gentiles who were desiring to participate in the Passover celebration. If you're a Gentile, you want to participate, be part of the Seder, Supper, etc., that's great. Come on. All are welcome. Again, Israel was to be light, a beacon into the world. But if you were a Gentile, there was just one thing that had to happen before you could come to dinner. Hey, you want to come over to Pastor Zach's for Passover? That's great. You got to be circumcised. So before you come over, you just take care of that and we'll welcome you. Like that, that, we find that in Exodus 12. It's, it's, it's interesting. Now, what's more fascinating is that that's the only other mention and the entirety of the, of, of the law about circumcision, making, interestingly enough, this one verse, Leviticus 12, verse 3, the only mention pertaining to the Hebrew people of circumcision. In the entire Levitical Mosaic law, this is it. Now, that's a shocking reality. But you should also note that what's articulated in this one verse is nothing new. In fact, it's just a reiteration of a command that God had given the Hebrew patriarch Abraham some 500 years earlier. Now, what makes this strange is that you would assume, because the act of circumcision becomes such a pivotal and largely controversial topic when you get to the New Testament, when the church started becoming less Jewish and more Gentile, that more would have been written about circumcision in the law. If it's such a big deal, you would have thought at least a chapter 
would have been dedicated. I mean, you get to the New Testament, there's two issues of controversy. There's circumcision, should the Gentiles be circumcised? And should the Gentiles eat of the dietary laws? Both are controversial. The dietary laws get a whole chapter. One verse was circumcision. Leviticus 12, 3 is all we have. Now, as I've studied this particular topic, I'm convinced that the reason circumcision only gets a small mention in the law boils down to really two issues. If you're a note taker, you can jot these things down. First, there was likely no need to expound upon circumcision because every Jew already understood its significance. It would have been super redundant. Keep in mind, when God was giving the people the law, whether it was from Mount Sinai, Exodus, or now from this tabernacle of meeting, Leviticus. As the Lord's giving the law, every Hebrew male hearing these things, they're already circumcised. It had already happened. In fact, there's an interesting event recorded for us in Exodus 4 that demonstrated how serious God actually took circumcision. Let me give you a flyby reading of this story. It's, it's, it blows my mind. We're told in Exodus 4, verse 24, that it came to pass, and again, for context, Moses He's already had like the burning bush experience. God has commissioned him. You're going to go to Egypt. You're going to be my representative. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. Moses is like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do that. And God's like, no, you're going to do that. Moses is like, but I got a stutter. I can't speak. And so God had already brought Aaron. Well, Aaron will be your spokesman. Side note, Aaron becomes the spokesman. We have no record of him ever acting as a spokesman. Moses had no problem saying the things that needed to be said. Anyway, Moses is on his way now to Egypt. Came to pass. They drew near the encampment of Israel, the land of Goshen. And then this is what the text tells us. The Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. I've had a lot of radical interactions with God in my lifetime. One in which God's actively trying to kill you. It's not high on my list. Now, while that's happening, immediately kind of realizing, putting some things together, that God was going to kill Moses because she had refused to have Moses' son circumcised. Like, she was like, this is not going to go on. We're told that Zipporah, who's Moses' Gentile wife, she immediately, so you get the scene. God has somehow, he's got Moses, he's going to kill him. Zipporah goes into action. She grabs a sharp stone, and (laughs) she cuts off the foreskin, of her son, she casts it at Moses' feet. You didn't know this was in the Bible, did you? And Zipporah says, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So the Lord let Moses go. And then she said, you are a husband of blood. Nice words from a wife. And then we're, as we're told, because of the circumcision. Like circumcision, not only was every Hebrew male already circumcised, so they already knew that it's important, but God had really like made it clear. He was going to kill the very deliverer he was sending if circumcision didn't happen. Now remember, the core purpose of the holiness code was about God ordering the lives of his people to be so different from the Gentile pagan world around them that they would never forget they had been called to be different from the pagan Gentile world around them. You see, these laws 
They didn't bestow to the Jewish people an identity. The laws didn't make them the people of God. They were already the people of God. You see, the laws were designed to be a reminder of their calling, a reminder of their identity. And the purpose behind male circumcision was fundamentally no different. In fact, we'll see in Genesis 17, it's called a sign, sign of a covenant. Which kind of leads to the second reason that God, I think, leaves circumcision out of the law as far as an expanded explanation. And that is the fact that the fundamental purpose, as we'll see this morning, behind the act of circumcision, it transcended the law. Like it was bigger. It comes earlier. It's in Genesis. Now since this reference to circumcision in Leviticus 12 verse 3 is brief but included, for our study of Leviticus to be complete, we need to take a look at the story back in Genesis that this verse intends to take our attention back to. Because again, this reference, all of the Jews would understand where this is coming from. They would connect the dots, but we should do that on our own. And in doing so, I really think that we'll come to see why circumcision was so important to God, why then it's not as relevant today. But we'll also see why it's included in Leviticus 12 specifically. I think this is important and fascinating. Why circumcision of a male child is included in a chapter dealing with a woman following childbirth. Because I think it's radical. Genesis chapter 17. We're going to work our way through about half the chapter. But we're told when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now for a larger context as to what's happening, it's worth pointing out that Genesis chapter 16 closes telling us that Abram was 86 years old. Now we get to chapter 17, and Abraham is being presented as 99, which tells us that there is a 13-year gap of time between these two chapters. And the reason that detail matters is that it's been more than a decade since Abraham has made probably the most critical error in judgment in his entire life. Abraham was 99 with one big problem. You see, chapter 16 records for us a story where Abram failed to trust in the promises of God. God had promised that he was going to provide a son through his wife Sarah. But he doubted. And in a moment of weakness, impatient, pressured to do something about it. He takes the promises of God into his own hands and he decides he's going to enact them on his own. He lays with Sarah's handmaiden, an Egyptian named Hagar, produces a son of the flesh, names him Ishmael. It was a bad, bad move. Now Abraham's life undoubtedly continued following the birth of Ishmael. But 13 years have transpired. 13 years, by the way, of zero mention of any interaction between Abram and God. Which tells us that this season of life, following his greatest failure, was filled with nothing but a divine silence. 
Like, like imagine that for a moment. Abram fails. I mean, bad, big time. And what followed his failure? 13 years of God saying nothing. Silence. Crickets. Have you ever been in a situation where someone that you've harmed, that you've wronged, that you've hurt, responds by giving you the cold shoulder? I mean, husbands, wives, you've, you ever had that happen? I mean, it's miserable. Just say something, right? 13 years of silence. You can imagine that Abram is having very real but natural thoughts. Has my failure ruined God's plan? Has God moved on? Where are you? Notice, though, chapter 17, these first few verses, how God breaks his silence. In verse 1, we read that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. (laughs) Imagine Abram's initial reaction. The moment the Lord appeared to him. How the Lord appeared to him, we're not told. Other than this is kind of a frequent thing happening in Abram's life. But I imagine that the appearing of the Lord after 13 years of silence didn't bring great joy. I'm sure it probably brought with it a measure of fear. He'd messed up with Hagar. What was God going to do? What would God say? Uncertainty at a minimum flooded his heart. But I'm also equally sure that the, the, the words that God utters here. So he appears, Abram's like, oh no. And then what comes out of God's mouth probably brought peace to his anxious heart. We read that the Lord said, I am Almighty God. I, I love this. If you study the names of God, this, this should be one of your favorites. In the Hebrew, this name, Almighty God, is a compound word, El Shaddai. The, the word El uh, which you would find in like Genesis 1, God, the word for God, El. It spoke of a masculine strength, the masculine strength of God. But the word Shaddai is totally different. In fact, it's derived from a feminine word, literally meaning breasts, or, or the one who nourishes. And, and note, this coupling, this, this use of this name for God, this is the first time in all of Scripture that God has used it in, in regards to him, Himself, El Shaddai encompassing both the masculine and the feminine. El Shaddai combined the strength of a man with a tenderness unique to a woman, which for a man in failure was important, right? Like Abraham would need kind of the strong hand of God. He had messed up. But that strength, the El, needed to be tempered with a tenderness, the Shaddai, El Shaddai. In the context of all that's happening, what a relief it must have been for Abram knowing that God had not appeared to squish him, to destroy him, to judge him. This was not, from just the very introduction of God, going to be a day of reckoning, but of reconciliation. The very name God uses articulated that the Lord was here to minister to him as two loving parents would minister to a child. Notice what else the Lord says. He continues, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Now, now for starters, this English translation makes it seem in kind of a cursory reading that God is establishing now, following his failure, a new covenant of sorts. But that's not 
exactly what's happening here. God isn't establishing a new covenant. The, the word make would be better translated as deliver or grant. This was not a new agreement. In a sense, what's happening is that while Abram knew there had been consequences to his decision to sleep with Hagar, God's letting him now know that the covenant that they had originally entered into chapters earlier still remained intact, which would be encouraging after 13 years of doubt and wonder. God appears and says, El Shaddai, I'm not done. I still have a plan. Not only that, it's worth pointing out that in the exchange that follows, God's going to use this, this phrase, my covenant, nine times. And he'll declare, I will do something, an astounding 24 times. Meaning that this chapter, this covenant, this agreement had way more to do with God and what he would do than Abram and what he would do. Undoubtedly, Abram had made a royal mess of his life by sleeping with Hagar and having Ishmael. But what a wonderful, encouraging reality, knowing here right from the beginning that God's covenant with him was not predicated upon his performance. I find that so encouraging. Instead, their agreement and the one that we have with the Lord is founded not on our ability, but God's ability to make good on his promises. You don't have a performance relationship with God. You have a promise relationship with God contingent upon him being good, not you. Look again at the exhortation that comes next. He says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, in order to understand what God's saying, let's kind of unpack this backwards. In the Hebrew, this phrase, be blameless, and be blameless, it's one word. And what it means is it means to be whole or to be complete. The old King James Version actually translates this directive as to be perfect. Be perfect. Understand, this was not something that God was exhorting Abram to do, especially in the context that he'd already messed things up. He had already failed. He couldn't be perfect in that sense. So God's not telling him to do something. Rather, God is in this directive reminding Abram who he was to be perfect. Furthermore, this phrase, and again, we're unpacking this backwards, walk before me. Don't overanalyze that. Some people place more weight into it than they should. Really, all it is is an invitation for Abram to come back and meet with God. To walk before, to abide in a relationship, a continuation of something. Like how incredible as it, as it is and as it should be that this failed man, who by the way his failure is the core explanation for what we call the Middle East crisis. You're still dealing with the effects of this. Big failure. But Abram, who had fallen, is still invited by God to come before him as one who is perfect. Friend, that only happens through God's grace. This idea of repentance we should unpack a little bit. It's a buzzword used mainly by Christians, repentance. You don't run into the word repentance much in secular circles. That being said, the truth is many Christians don't fully understand what the word repentance means. Like case in point, I was recently asked whether I thought Kanye West needed to repent publicly for his past transgressions. I told the guy that the very question itself revealed a complete ignorance to what repentance actually is. 
as if anyone but God was owed an apology by Conway, Kanye West. Like, you know what? He can't be my brother until I get an apology. What? In the Hebrew, you'll encounter when it comes to repentance two different words, which sometimes leads to some confusion. One of the words for repentance describes sorrow. It's, it's an emotion. It describes sorrow. It describes regret. But the other word we find in the Hebrew simply means to turn back or return. And it's the second Hebrew word that we find most often in the New Testament. Metatao. This word repentance in the New Testament, it's a military term. When Paul uses it, it's a Roman soldier would completely get it. The, the word means or defines, describes three specific actions. To repent is to first stop the direction that you're headed. Turn around. So the second action, a turning, a stopping, a turning, and a returning. Going back. That's the word. When, when you imagine the, uh, Buckingham Palace and the guards going back and going before, they're, they're repenting a lot. Going back and going forth. Repentance. Think of it not so much an emotion, but a changing of the mind that fosters a change in direction. Like repentance in a biblical sense is not feeling remorseful or feeling bad about one's actions while there is a component to that. Repentance isn't, I'm sorry, or promising to be better. Repentance is a decision you make in the will that what I'm doing is wrong. The direction I'm heading leads to destruction. I need to stop. I need to turn about face, turn from those things, and then have an active movement the opposite way. Like when someone says they're sorry, but their life doesn't change, they never repented. It's not what the word means. Now the problem with the way that Christians present repentance is that you know so often, and I think, I think you'll, you'll relate to this. We've all probably been, we've all felt this. But when we talk about repentance in a Christian circle, what's often emphasized is what a person is supposed to turn from. Like, that's the emphasis. And rarely is there a greater emphasis placed on what we're supposed to be turning back towards. There's always this emphasis of stop doing what you're doing and not an exhortation to do something else. A turning from, a turning to. Like, I'll give you an example. When you first became a Christian, what did repentance look like? What was it? Well, I'll tell you what it should have been. Repentance should have manifested in a, in a moment in time where you make a decision in your will. You make a decision. You decide that the direction I'm heading is not good. And instead, you know what? I'm going to stop about face and I'm going to come to the cross of Calvary. It's a recognizing of what Jesus did and it's a coming to the cross and accepting that on your behalf, placing your faith in the Lord. And it's this that so many get wrong. Yes, repentance does have a component where you're turning away from sin. But repentance is a turning back to something greater than your sin. R repentance is a returning to the cross. That very first place that you encounter Jesus. The place of salvation. The demonstration of grace. What makes you right with God in the throne room of heaven. You see, what's happening in our passage 
is that in God's appeal that Abram walk before me and be blameless, he's asking Abraham, a failed man, to repent. The progression, I'll, re- I'll recap. God first reminds Abraham who he is, kind of revealing a new part of himself. I'm Almighty God, El Shaddai. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to condemn. There's some strength, but it's tempered with my tenderness. Then God reminds Abram who he is. I'm Almighty God. Bro, you're blameless. And then he invites him to come back to his presence. Walk before me. While Abram had failed, God's promises to Abraham had not been derailed. And most importantly, his standing before God had not been tarnished. Yes, there were consequences, but he was still a right man. It's as though God is saying to Abram, Abram, I know you messed up. I know it's been 13 years, but come back to me. Remember, you're still a righteous man in my eyes. I love you. I care about you. I still have a plan. My plan hadn't been deterred in the slightest. Let's continue reading. So Abram fell on his face. I would do that in that situation. And God talked with him. And he said, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Again, my covenant. You shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And then look down at verse 15. Similar thing is repeated. God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now before God restates his promises to Abram, and, and we get into the whole circumcision thing, like notice again something amazing that happens here. First, the Lord says to Abram, I have made you a father. <laughs> that's that's kind of crazy. Why? Abram had made himself a father to Ishmael. God hadn't had a role in that. We do know, spoiler alert, Isaac will come. But in this moment, God is speaking in the present tense. I've already made you a father. You just haven't seen it happen yet. You haven't seen it develop, but I've done it. You see, because Abram had placed his faith in the coming Savior, God's future promises had been based on what? Not Abram's performance, but God's favor. See, God's work was just as good as done. He was working in Abram. He had already determined who he'd be. You know, aside from this amazing reality, I love the fact that God then gives a 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman new names. As if, like, you know, the first 99 years of being called Abram didn't work. He changes Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. Sarah. In ancient times, the ability to name something was deeply significant. It had held a significance because naming something demonstrated dominion over what you were naming. Here's an easy example. In the Genesis record, Adam was given the responsibility of naming all the animals. Why? Because God had given him dominion over creation. So in his first act of of demonstrating dominion, he names the animals. Furthermore, God, in this hierarchy of how humanity was to work, God named Adam, but then allowed Adam to name his wife Eve. Not that he was to lord over dominion, 
but that he was responsible for her, that he was to care for her. Giving a name mattered a great deal in ancient times. Now, we have no record that God had any role at all in Abram being named Abram or Sarai being named Sarai. But this act now in this passage of God renaming them illustrates that God is enacting a certain dominion over their lives. Like in his worldly life, think about it. His name, Abram, it means exalted father, which was kind of a cruel joke because the dude didn't have any kids. And yet, God now renames him Abraham, meaning father of many nations, something God would do in his life. Sarai meant princess, but Sarah meant mother of nations. So the question begs, how did Abram become Abraham? How did Sarai become Sarah? How did they have these new identities? How did the exalted father and the princess without kids become respectively the father and mother of many nations? Did they do anything to demand the destiny change? Did they earn it? Did they merit it? Did they do a thing in our passage? You read it? I didn't. In fact, the last chapter we just had epic failure. No activity. You see, God here acts on his own. He imparts a new identity. He redefines who they were to be. And how did God practically do this? I love it. I love this. All he does is he adds one Hebrew letter to their name. Now, I know you didn't get that in, in, in a reading, but aha, A-H. It's, it's a Hebrew word. It gets translated in, from Hebrew into English. Just roll with me. A-H is inserted into Abram, making him Abraham. Sarai, you drop the I, you add the A-H. All we're doing here is adding one letter, one Hebrew letter to their name. Changes everything. What's interesting is that Hebrew letter is the fifth in the Hebrew alphabet, which in our travels through Leviticus, if you haven't picked up that numerology kind of matters, it tells us interesting things. You can go overboard, but it's fascinating. Number five is always the letter of, you want to take a guess, grace. You see, how did God redefine who they were? He added one letter, the fifth. He demonstrated grace. He changed them. Side note, that's also why we have five offerings in the Levitical record of chapters one through seven, five. An accident? No, it's, it's all about God's grace, the precedent for grace. You see, they received new identities. God adding grace, God demonstrating favor, God doing a work they couldn't. You know, that's the exact same way we also have a new identity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Did you do anything? No, he did a lot. You did nothing. But by his work, you are now made into a new creation. Old things passed away. All things have become new. Renewal. In Revelation 2 verse 17, we're told to him who overcomes, Jesus says, I will give a white stone and on that stone there will be this new name which no one accepts him who receives it will know. You know, God has a heavenly name for you. It'll just be you and him. A special name. Something he gives. Let's see what happens next. Verse 6. God continuing, I will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, 
and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Again, promises to Abraham meant for his descendants. We've been looking at those descendants in Leviticus who are on their way to the land of promise. So all of this is related. All of this is important. Now the covenant mentioned. It's described as an everlasting covenant. And the word everlasting, it implies that God had made a promise to Abraham that would possess a continuous existence. His promise would be perpetual, indefinite. God would give him a son. That son would become a nation who would possess all of the land of Canaan. You know, you can imagine what a relief. The reiteration of a promise that God had already made earlier to work in and through Abraham would have been for a man who had just screwed it all up and was struggling under that failure, questioning whether that promise still remained for 13 years. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or brought or bought with money from any foreigner who is not in, in your descendant. He who is born in your house or he who is bought with the money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child not circumcised. Well, that person shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. Now uh, we get to circumcision. This practice of the cutting of the foreskin was not invented in this instance. In fact, you can, if you study it, you can find uh, earlier references, historical references, even to other cultures. Uh, there was a sanitation purpose. On a side note, the eighth day is a medical marvel. Uh, we circumcise our male children almost immediately. Uh, that's because they get a boost of vitamin K, which helps with coagulation and blood. If you were to... to circumcise a child without the boost of vitamin K, child would bleed to death. It's important. That's why we give them vitamin K right off the bat. Your body produces the, the, the most vitamin K. You want to take a guess on what day of life? On the eighth day. As a matter of fact, you'll never have more vitamin K naturally produced in, in, a, in a human body aside from the eighth day. You'll lose it the rest of your life. That's why when you get much older, you bleed more easily. just don't have enough vitamin K. Fascinating. Circumcision. It existed. There was a medical purpose. There was sanitation reasons. But God now uses this. Uses this to be the sign of this agreement, of this covenant. This everlasting covenant that he made with not just Abraham, but Abraham's son Isaac and all of the descendants that would follow. And what was the covenant? I'll recap. That in an act of God's grace, he would provide a savior through their lineage to save the world of sin. So that by faith in that man's sacrifice, we might all become righteous before God. I'm summarizing a lot of scripture. Circumcision. It's mentioned in the law. Leviticus 12 verse 3. It's established though, and the fact it's established here in Genesis 17 is important. You see, circumcision was never to be the sign of the law. The law hadn't even been given yet. 
Rather, circumcision was to be a physical reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, namely, that through his lineage, through his family, through his seed, God would provide a savior. Now consider the context. Abraham had acted out in his own efforts to fulfill the promises of God by sleeping with Hagar and having Ishmael. Thirteen years go by. Silence. But the Lord appears. Reveals a new side of his person. El Shaddai. Invites him to repent. Imparts a new identity. Institutes circumcision as a physical reminder that their relationship and the fulfillment of God's work in his life would only happen through God's work in his life. A work of grace. Like to this point in Romans 4 verse 11, Paul writes the following, that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. His point, this had nothing to do about being righteous because Abraham was already righteous before he was circumcised. This is about reminding people of something. That he might be the father of all who believe, Paul says, though they are uncircumcised, and at that point he's talking about Gentile believers, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Grace. Well, the Jewish people would come to see, sadly, regrettably, circumcision as an external act that brought with it God's acceptance and entry into the lineage of Abraham, which, by the way, is why they wanted Gentiles to be circumcised in the New Testament context. Genesis 17, don't miss it, it demonstrates the exact opposite reality. Like, kind of in a stark way, like, how did you miss it? You see, circumcision was God's way of hammering home the point that no natural work of man's flesh could ever substitute for a supernatural work of God. That you can never do in the flesh what God can do in the Spirit. As David Guzik rightly observes in his commentary on this passage, he says, circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh and an appropriate sign of the covenant for those who should put no trust in the flesh. See, circumcision never intended to yield God's favor somehow through man's obedience. Instead, it was an act that physically represented one's faith and the Savior who would work on our behalf. Circumcision was God's way of emphasizing to Abraham and all those who would follow looking for a Savior how powerless the flesh would always be as it pertained to fulfilling the promises of God. And for the student of Scripture, this explains why circumcision is no longer necessary following the completed work of Jesus it meant to point towards. Again, in Galatians 5, Paul would write, For we, through the Spirit, eagerly await the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. This act of cutting away the flesh to demonstrate a faith that rejected human activity and the place of divine involvement is incredible. God's clear to Abraham after his mistake with Hagar what? Like, what did the act remind him of? <laughs> Stay out of my way, bro. Like, I have a plan for your life. I'm going to work that plan out, and I need you to stay out of the way.
man, don't we get into God's way more? Like, like our failure. Stay out of my way, Abraham. Let me work. Let me do my thing. It's also worth noting the procedure of circumcision. When did it happen? Again, the eighth day. There's medical reasons, but there's deeper meaning, again, referring back to numbers and how they matter. The number eight, it represents new beginning. Seven completion, right? Seven notes to a scale, full scale. Seven days to a week. The eighth day is a new week. It's a new beginning. It's signifying of new creation. You might call it being born again. It's fascinating. God institutes circumcision directly after Abram's been given a new identity through grace. Abram, I know you failed. Abram, I know you blew it. There's going to be repercussions, but this is who I am. This is who you are. My promises still remain. Here's a new identity, and let's do something new. So, what does all this tell us about Leviticus 12? (laughs) Let's get back to the, the heart of it. Last Sunday I mentioned that with every pregnancy, a Hebrew woman was reminded of two realities. First, (laughs) the curse of sin is terrible. Like, that's the first reality. Man, what God told Eve about pain and childbirth, I'm just having a baby, and this sin curse thing is horrible. The natural reminder. The wages of sin, oh, is death. Life, total gift of God. I got it. But secondly, the Hebrew woman would be reminded that as terrible an experience as it was, that through that, God was going to bring forth a Savior for the world. Man, this curse thing, practically speaking, horrible. How interesting that through it, through the horror, through the sin, through the fallenness, through the brokenness, God's going to still bring life. Not just that life, but eternal life. Like This is why if the woman had a son, she was commanded, required, to circumcise that son on the eighth day. See, in this act, she would be reminded that God had promised Abraham That he would provide a savior for the world through their seed, family, and through the woman's experience. And in doing so, she would be reminded that God would redeem a woman's labor and childbirth by bringing salvation into the world. (laughs) So what's the application for us? In the midst of his failure... God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision to remind him of an important component pertaining to their covenant. On a side note, this would also, this idea, would provide an equal encouragement for a woman who's just experienced the practical consequences of the curse of sin and birthing a child. And and so what is it all reminding them of? Huh. 
that God's work of saving sinful man would not be predicated upon sinful man's performance, but God's perpetual goodness. That idea in and of itself makes the Bible the most radical book in in the world. It, It makes what Christianity proposes the most radical revolutionary concept in the world, that, that my interactions, like my relationship with God, me being good with God, has zero to do with me reaching to the divine. Which is what every other world religion tells. Every other world religion, every other philosophical um, ideology, it presents a notion that you have a list of things to do to earn God's favor. In Islam, it's five pillars of faith. Buddha had an eightfold path. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses have you wear goofy suits and walk door to door. Mormons, no one really figures that one out. But the idea inherent to all of them, here's a list of things you do. Hopefully God will be pleased with you if you do them. And yet Christianity comes along, the Bible comes along, and it says, yeah, you can't do anything. Do you know you? You're a total screw-up. If it's all based on you and your performance and your ability, we're all damned. How good it is to know that it isn't. Where every other religion has man reaching to God, it's Christianity that has God reaching down to man. I know you can't do it. So I'll do it. I got it. Put your faith in me. Trust in me. Please don't miss how amazing this reality is. Like whether you find yourself in a place of failure, like Abraham, maybe you've even, coming to church this morning, you have not heard from God in a while. He's been silent. Did I so mess it up that God's grace isn't, isn't, isn't there for me anymore? And you might come here with some serious doubts as to whether God still loves you, whether God still has a plan for you, because you blew it, and it was bad. Or maybe you came just experiencing the bite that manifests from just the curse broadly. Because this world's terrible. It's terrible because of sin, and it stinks because of sin, and people who don't do things wrong get hurt, and they're victims. Nothing about you, but the world just beats you down. And that might be you this morning. And if that's either dynamic... The concept behind circumcision of all things taking place on the eighth day should be profoundly encouraging. (laughs) You see, friend, your new life came from nothing that you've done. Like eternal life manifests from a work Jesus did on your behalf. You know, Jesus was born through this curse, the woman. He experienced life fully under its effects. He ultimately died under its weight. But Jesus rose victorious. In many ways, the act of circumcision, no longer relevant in our New Testament context, it's been replaced by another act. Another thing we're instructed to do, to do often, interestingly enough, and that is communion. You know, one act looked forward 
to a coming Savior. The other looks back to the work accomplished. Both are done as an act of faith. Both are done in an act of faith, serving as a reminder of what important truth? That my relationship and your relationship with the God of the universe is based, it's founded, it's anchored, not to shifting sand, which is you, but to a solid rock, which is Him. That your relationship with God, your status in heaven is righteous. His plans and purposes are founded on His ability to make good on His promises in spite of your inadequacy or failure. So this morning, if you've blown it, I want to encourage you to repent. I don't care what you're doing. The remedy is all the same. Just stop. Turn around. Look back at the cross. Like realize that your debt for whatever you did has already been paid in full by a sacrifice of Jesus who declared it is finished to telestai. Nothing to be added. So why walk in condemnation when your debt's been paid? Never forget that it is the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. It's not his judgment. It's not his condemnation. It's not him beating you down. It's him lifting you up. And if this morning you're struggling under the consequence of sin, take heart knowing that God's work has never been restricted by the curse. Like God's never been limited by the curse. He's never been limited by sin. His work has never been predicated upon your performance. Amazingly, it was in the woman's labor that God provided a Savior. Which is what Leviticus 12 is all about. So Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.